Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at uh, the things that Moses had seen on the mountain with God as he received the Ten Commandments and then went back up again um, after... uh, I'm sorry, we haven't gone up again yet. That's after the golden calf incident. But uh, uh, the, uh, the types and the pictures that God gave Moses of what he wanted the children of Israel to do to allow him to then come and dwell in the midst of them. We've seen the smoke, uh, you know, the pillar of smoke and fire, um, the, the pillar of cloud, I'm sorry, and the, the pillar of fire that's been God's presence essentially in the camp. And now he's saying, um, there's a place where I'm going to dwell, where the, the congregation of Israel can come and meet with me. Um, and just to give you a brief history lesson, you know, we went through Genesis before Exodus and we know that when God created mankind, he had an intimate relationship with them in the garden. It says that, um, you know, after Adam and Eve sinned, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the cool of the day, and they, they were able to speak to each other, and they had a relationship that we don't really grasp because all we really see is mankind being separated by sin from God. But to be completely one with God in the sense that there was no sin and no, no rebellious act that had Put a, driven a wedge between God and man. Um, from that point on, we see, I mean, even immediately after that happening, God points to the Messiah who's going to restore all things uh, the way they should be, reconciling man and God, heaven and earth, as it were. And uh, we see over and over again that even though God is holy and perfect, he just can't get enough of his creation. He always is trying to find a way for us, even as sinners, to have a relationship with him. And it can't be done uh, in a divine way. I mean, we can't have that unity uh, apart from God when we're still in our sin. But even the children of Israel, who didn't have you know, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus had not come and died and rose and risen again, he was making a way, whether it be the sacrificial system or the establishment of a place of worship, as we're going to look at tonight. It was a way so that God could come and be with his people, sinful human beings. Uh, we give the children of Israel, uh, you know, especially in this, when we see all the bad things that they've done, we give them a, a bad rap oftentimes because we see them through our loveless eyes, for lack of a better term, and we forget to see them as God saw them. Because after this, I mean, after the things that we've seen where they're saying, oh, the manna, oh, this, that, oh, and they complain all the time, we're like, oh, God, just start over. And he actually at one point says, I'm going to start over with you, Moses. You know? uh, and Moses says, no, this is your people. You know? um, God loved these people so much so that he was going to establish a way for his holy presence to come and, and live and hang out <laughs> with sinful mankind, which I think is really interesting. And when we look at these things and we read about 50 loops and blue ribbon and red ribbon and this and that, um, we can kind of glaze over a little bit. I, he- I heard somebody say, today as I was just getting ready, they said these two chapters should excite us uh, as much as any other chapters in the Bible because they give us a picture of what heaven is like. Because we'll see as we learn in Hebrews, the things that God had shown Moses on the mountain were things that already existed in heaven. And these are a type or a shadow. It was God's way of showing Moses, you know, to create something that is similar or, you know, is a simile of what eternally exists in God's presence. So when we look at it that way, it kind of gets you excited about, you know, okay, this is something, you know, badger skins or not, uh, this is something that we have to look forward to, which is God's house, you know. And um, 
it will learn tonight that Jesus, you know, the sacrifices and all these things were accomplished in Jesus, and we'll talk about that. That's why I had you turn to Hebrews, because we're going to spend a good amount of time there as well. Uh, so if you'd bear with me, I'm going to read a lot. I'll try to use enough inflection to keep you interested. Um, so I'm going to, we're going to plow through the first chapter here, because Again, it's a lot of just lengthy details, um, but then we'll, we'll take points and then we'll kind of summarize the entire uh, two chapters that we cover. So I'll try to come up for air uh, when it seems appropriate. Uh, verse 1, chapter 26, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread. With artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, the width of each curtain four cubits, and every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain, on, it, on the selvedge of one set, and likewise you shall do on the, other, on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the end of the second set, that the loops may be clasped to one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. Now, you read that and you might not be able to picture it, but if you think about it, you, if you think of a shower curtain, you have the little ringlets that keep the, the uh, whatever they would be called, <laughs> the hooks from tearing through the curtain. They have those nice little... Uh, whether they be bronze or brass or metal things that protect. And that's essentially what he's describing here is the curtains are going to match on either side. They're the same length, the same height, and you're going to make these little couplets or whatever you call them. And then they're going to hook on to the beams. Uh, so I actually have some pictures. I don't know if you can pull those up, but um, we're very visual people. And uh, it's helpful, especially when you're reading about this. You know, this is like, we're in the Ikea generation where they don't even tell you how to do things. They just show you pictures like A slot and B joist, and they just go together and stuff like that. And my Legos that I get for my kids, my, I don't know how they expect kids to put them together because I'm like, okay, well, the picture's in color and black and white, and the color designates the piece that you should be using to put this together, and everything that's in black and white is stuff that should have been assembled over it. Very crazy. But uh, I, I know it's kind of hard to see because of the lighting in here, <clears throat> but... This is what we're going to describe tonight, the tabernacle. Has any, have any of you ever been to the, the living tabernacle, not the living tabernacle, the life-size tabernacle in Lancaster? Anybody? It's, uh, we, I, I suggested we should probably take a trip up there at some point, maybe when we finish the book of Exodus. So if we can put that together, maybe we will. Um, it's not as, you expect it to be this big, grandiose thing, like, whoa, the tabernacle. And then you're like, oh, it's only this big. It's, it's to scale, and it actually doesn't take up as much room as you'd imagine. Um, when I think of the tabernacle, I think of like the descriptions of like Herod's temple and all that stuff, and it's just gigantic. Um, but they built this replica as it's described to the best, you know, as, as people are reading through this, the best of their ability to match the measurements and things. Um, but we're going to look at each part here. We're going to look at the court, which is the outer portion. We're going to look at the, the altar of burnt offering, and then there's the, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. And we're talking about all of those things tonight. So um, hopefully that gives you kind of a cool idea. There's actually, if you go to the next picture, there's a, an actual um, rendition or replica in Israel uh, that looks like this. Um, it has the outer you know, barriers, and then that, that's actually a real photo, even though you can't really make it out there. Uh, so let's pick up in verse 7. It says, You shall also make curtains of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. 
You shall make eleven curtains. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the width of each curtain four cubits. And the eleven curtains shall all have the same measurements, and you shall couple five curtains by themselves, and six curtains by themselves. And you shall double over the sixth curtain at the forefront of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and fifty loops on the edge of the curtain on the second set. And you shall make fifty bronze clasps, and the clasps into the loops, and the couple and couple the tent together, that it may be one, and the remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. So um, as we're going to see, there are a number of layers of materials that cover over this tabernacle. And you have to think that this is an outdoor, uh, you know, it's a, it's a structure that's being made outdoors. Uh, it doesn't say anything like if it's raining, call it a day and put the tabernacle away. We don't see that in, in, de- de- described here. It's not like with the American flag where you're like, you're supposed to take it down a certain way and stuff like that. It's like they, wherever they went, they set up the tabernacle, rain, sleet, snow, whatever. So um, there's layers of, of uh, we'll see, cloth and then badger skins and, and goat's hair and all this stuff, and that's to protect it. Uh, um, there's a lot of types in the things. I mean, we could spend weeks and months talking about what does the badger skin signify and what does the blue thread signify. We're not going to do that just for the sake of time tonight, but I encourage you to look at it. I mean, not all of it is a divine inspiration of Scripture uh, where people kind of start to say like, well, the blue thread means Christ's divinity. or that. Like, and you're like, okay, well, we see that from our perspective, but I don't necessarily think that's what was being described when it was being told to Moses. But it's interesting nonetheless, and it's kind of fun to do that kind of homework, so I encourage you to do that. Um, but first of all, we're saying this word tabernacle, 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 which is a church word. You, no one says the word tabernacle unless you go to a church. It's just one of those words that stands out, and we kind of know what it means because we've attended church. Uh, literally, it comes from the Latin tabernaculum, I think. Tabernaculum, which means tent. And, and as you can see, that's essentially what it is. It's a tent. We've, we've created this uh, aura about tabernacle. It sounds like this huge thing. But as we go through tonight, it's important that we understand that a tabernacle is a place to live. And in this culture, it was a transient place to live because they were constantly on the move. Uh, So it was very important that we understand the tabernacle when we talk about that. It's not this big shrine that is permanently embedded on the foundation of this world. It's something that was built for a time and a place so that the people could meet with God, could sacrifice to God, and then move on. Um, so I know for me, as I was preparing that for this, I was like, the tabernacle, it just sounds like this big thing that I, I picture it being this big extravagant thing. And it really isn't when you read the descriptions. I mean, descriptions. I mean, there's gold and there's a lot of precious things that go into the making of it. But the structure in and of itself was pretty ordinary, uh, which is important to remember as, we, as we'll continue on. There's a, there's a lot of significance for that, I think. Uh, so let's look at verse 14. You shall also make a covering of ram skins dyed red for the tent and a covering of badger skins. There they are. They're my favorite part. Uh, above that, and for the tabernacle, you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Two tenons shall be in each board for binding one to another. 
Thus you, sh- thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle. And you shall make the boards of the tabernacle, 20 boards of this, for the south side. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be 20 boards. And there are 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. For the far side of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six boards, and you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. They shall be coupled together at the bottom, and they shall be coupled together at the top of one ring. Thus it shall be for both of them. They shall be for the two corners. So there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each of the boards. You got it? Now go build it. <laughs> um, what's interesting to note is that uh, as we look in the, in the book of Exodus, uh, in chapters 35, 36, 37, we see these descriptions, again, <laughs> almost word for word, and it's describing um, the men that God had appointed. I think their names were Behaliel and, and something else, I forget. But it says they were actually filled with the Spirit to complete the work, which I find really interesting. So when, you get, when we get to that, we'll see if... <laughs> We'll probably summarize because it's essentially basically saying everything that Moses was told to do, they did to the letter. When it said a socket of brass, they didn't say, let's make it of wood instead. They did it exactly the way God appointed it to be. Um, And verse 26, I think is where we left off. And you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle, for the far side westward. The middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold, make their rings of gold as holders for the bars and overlay the bars with gold. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. And we'll see that refrain over and over again according to the pattern that was shown on the mountain. So oftentimes we picture the movie and we see Charlton Heston go up on the mountain, get the Ten Commandments, and then come back down. But we know Moses was up there for 40 days, 40 nights. And all of this information was being downloaded essentially into Moses, which I find really interesting that he was able to come down and say, okay, here's the, here's the game plan. And he remembered all of this stuff. That was the Holy Spirit. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that it talks about when Moses came down, that he had the glory. His face had been transfigured, essentially. He had the glory of God, and it says that he would put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel would not see the light dimming. But that was what he was experiencing. And and I find it really interesting because oftentimes when we come to church, this is just a side note, I apologize, but when we come to church, we want to be entertained and, and, you know, we want there to be happen in music, and we want there to be a really edgy message or whatever it may be, and uh, we say, you know, we get that tingly feeling that that was a good service, which oftentimes it is a good service, but I find it really interesting that Moses was getting blueprints on the mountain, and he came down with his face glowing after being in the presence of God, and obviously it was because he was in God's presence, so anything God said would be interesting, but I just find it really interesting that this is what he was learning. He was learning the law, which oftentimes we neglect because we say, oh, it's really boring, whatever. And these instructions that we, we neglect sometimes to read. Um, so that's just kind of a, an editorial comment. I find it really interesting that these are the types of things that God saw so important that Moses would come up on the mountain to describe. So it helps us to really say, what, are, what is the significance of these things? If this is so important that it's not only included in the scriptures, but 
we're told in the New Testament that Christ fulfilled and that these things were a shadow pointing to Jesus Christ. And we really need to take notice of these things. I mean, I did because I had to study for it, but hopefully all of us as Christians will start to dig into these things and find out what is their true significance. Um, I read someone say, as we're taught in the epistle to the Hebrews, the tabernacle was part of a great system of teaching by object lessons and of training the world to understand and receive the great truths which were to be revealed in Jesus Christ. And thus really to save the Jews from sin by Jesus, dimly seen in the future as we clearly see him in the past. So essentially these things were kind of like how Jesus used parables. You know, the people that that really understood them, you know, Jesus spoke plainly to his disciples, but then he spoke in parables to those who didn't understand. The temple and the types and the tabernacle, it was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And, And the Jewish people couldn't really see that. But we benefit from being on the other side of it and say, wow, you can see Jesus in all of these things. When you look at the, the type of wood that's used and you look at the, the red skin and, the, and then just the, the idea of the tabernacle being skin on the outside and the idea of the Spirit of God dwelling in, in the body of Jesus Christ when he came to earth. It's just really interesting. Um, so we left off in verse 30, and uh, this is where we'll start to divert a little bit. Uh, it says in verse 31, you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. And you shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. And you shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the south of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. So we see those three colors appearing several times throughout this description. Fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold. And you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. So we're done chapter 26. Aren't you glad? Um, But we have this, the first time that we hear about a veil. And I want to take some time to look at this veil. Because the veil, as we know, it, it comes up over and over again. Uh, throughout the rest of the scripture, mainly in the New Testament, we see what that veil is. And just to give you an idea, when you would walk in, I mean, outside of the temple, and we still have that, okay, cool. So you would walk in, and there would be this outer court, which we'll talk about in the next chapter. Uh, This is where the people would come. They would bring their sacrifices. They would bring the sacrifice up that little ramp to the altar of burnt offering, which we're going to talk about next. They would make their offering there. And then there would be the bronze laver, or, you know, essentially it was like a washing bowl where people would then wash, the high priest would wash, and then he would go into the holy place. And inside the holy place, we had the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table of showbread, or some translations say the bread of the presence. Uh, so that was something that the priests would go in and do. Then, one time a year, the high priest would go in behind that veil, the veil that's blue and, and purple and red that was dividing the holy place from the most holy place. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony was. That was where the, the mercy seat was, and, and you hear about that. 
And that was literally where the presence of God dwelt, um, was in that holy, most holy place. And the high priest could only go in there once. He would sacrifice for his own sins, and then he would enter in and sacrifice for the sins of the people. So this veil comes up throughout uh, the, uh, the New Testament, as we'll see. If you could go to uh, chapter, uh, Luke 23, verse 45. Justin, sorry, I know it's jumping around here. If you'll recall, when Jesus died and he cried out with a loud voice, it says the veil in the temple was torn in two, and one of the other gospels says from top to bottom. This is the veil. It's not the specific veil that was made with the tabernacle, obviously, because the tabernacle was then built by Solomon into a temple. And then that temple was destroyed, when, and, and they were, the Israelites were sent into exile. Uh, then when they came back, we know Ezra and Nehemiah coming back from exile, rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple. Then we have Herod's temple, which is what was present in Jesus' day. And, and he speaks about this temple over and over again. And we'll see it in a, in, a, in a few minutes where Jesus says, see this temple here? And everybody's like, wow, this temple's amazing. It's got everything. It's ornate. It's beautiful. It's even better than we could have possibly imagined it being described in Exodus 26. And when we read it uh, in black and white, you know, it's kind of hard to picture how beautiful some of these things are. But the temple was made of stone. This wasn't just some badger skin little lean-to or whatever. You know, I mean, this was a structure. And that temple that went up all the way, and some, some people said it was, you know, 80 to 18 inches thick or something like that, I've heard people say, that this, this veil was torn into separating the most holy place from everybody else, essentially. I mean, there was the holy place and then the most holy place, but this veil that separated, that only the high priest could enter behind, was separated and Jesus cried out and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And what I find really interesting is he yields up his spirit on the cross. And it's at that moment that the veil is torn in two. The spirit that was living in God's form on earth, uh, in the body of Jesus Christ, it says in John 1 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus was on earth, the Holy Spirit was inside of him. His disciples weren't filled with the Spirit the way they would be after he left. He said in John 14 and 16, he talked about the Holy Spirit, and he said, it's to your advantage that I go away because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to comfort you, and he's going to guide you into all truth, and he's going to bring to your remembrance the things that I've taught you. And He's going to come and live inside. And he says that for those that, that love me, uh, that the spirit of the living God would actually come and dwell or make their tabernacle. God would make his tabernacle with you, which I find really interesting. So this veil has a lot of significance here because it was the thing that separated from the time that Adam ate that forbidden fruit. And I know Eve, essentially, but Adam, the one who willfully took and ate, and transgressed. And the sin is always attributed to Adam. It's never attributed to Eve throughout the scriptures, if you look at it. Um, so when, you know, on a, as a side note, when men are like, yeah, we're the, we're the head. It's like, yeah, but you're the one who's culpable for anything that goes wrong, essentially, because Adam, nobody said like Eve sinned. No, uh, it's Adam's sin. And from that bite of forbidden fruit, 
to uh, all the atrocities that Babylon committed and all the things as it goes down and to the 60 million babies that are aborted and the Holocaust and all these things that we read about and hear about on the news, that sin that comes from the heart of man, right? That's what's in here. That is why God is behind that veil. And it's amazing that he would even have just that veil separating him. And when Jesus died on the cross and gave up his spirit, that veil was opened and the holiness of God was revealed to the rest of sinful world, which I find amazing. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, it says the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us as Christians, the same spirit. So the spirit came back into Jesus and he rose from the dead and then he breathed on his disciples, the Holy Spirit, and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And from that point on, when he ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit now dwells inside the believer. And it's because of that veil being torn. And it says in Hebrews chapter 9, let me find that verse. <clears throat> I'm sorry, uh, chapter 6, apologize. Verse 19, you don't have to turn there. That should be up in the, the scriptures there. I think I'm missing a page of my notes. I think I printed it out and left one at home. That's why I'm having a hard time here. Um, in Hebrews six nineteen and 20, it says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, be sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest, forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So this veil, this idea of it being torn apart, it's so that all people can now come boldly into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. This is the veil that we're talking about here. And it's really interesting how we see its, its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, as we see with a lot of things. Um, let's move on through chapter 27, and then we'll, we'll sum everything up. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 27, it says, you shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Also, you shall make its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze, and the network you shall make four bronze rings. At its four corners, you shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath, that the network may be midway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. You shall make it hollow with boards, as it was shown you on the mountain, so shall they make it. So this is an image of what an artist's rendition would look like, the bronze altar, so when it says it's hollow, it was essentially a box. And there was a grate that would all the ashes from the burnt offering could fall into and then they could clean it out. But the, the offering would sit on top of the grate and everything, uh, even the tabernacle, as we'll see, it has these, these um, rings and then there was wood. And we, we know that about the, altar, uh, the Ark of the Covenant as well, where they weren't to, to carry the thing itself. It was always carried by wood to, uh, to keep them from touching it and defiling it. Um, it was a hollow wooden box overlaid with bronze. There was a bronze grating on the top and on the sides of the altar. So everything could kind of run out that wasn't 
needed and could be easily cleaned up. So when we look at the altar of burnt offering, this is a huge, huge picture of Jesus Christ. And we see it over and over again, the idea of Jesus being offered. Um, really quickly, it should be the last verse in there, Justin, I think. Ephesians 5.2 says that we should walk in love as Christ also loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And that's the description of Jesus Christ, uh, him being an offering. So if you would, if you could turn with me to Hebrews chapter uh, 8, because I'd like to, to look forward to the, the consummation of all these things, I guess. Um, and we'll spend probably the most of our time here. I do have to go back and finish. Um, in chapter 8 of Hebrews, we see... It's talking about the new priest, the new high priest, that Jesus is better than all the previous high priests from the line of Aaron or the line of Levi. And he says in verse 1, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So uh, there's a verse in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is talking to the, the Sanhedrin, and he's basically on trial, and he's about to be stoned uh, by those around, and Paul's there consenting to his death while his name was still Saul. He speaks of the tabernacle, and he says in Acts seven forty four, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. And then in verse 47, it says, But Solomon built him a house. He built God a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? So you're like, wait, Jeff, you just said that God chose to dwell in this tabernacle and then later on in the temple. So why is Stephen saying that? God does not dwell in temples made with hands. I can't really tell you. I mean, I can, but I don't know if I'm right. (laughs) Because it does say that he came to dwell, but it also says that those things were only a shadow and a type. So how did God dwell in a temple on earth? We'll find out. Um, Because it seems contradictory, doesn't it? That it says that he doesn't dwell in a temple made with hands. But then he said... Make this tabernacle with your hands so that the presence of God could come and meet with you. And then he had Solomon build a temple and said, this is where the presence of God. And we read about it in Chronicles and, and uh, as the first Kings, I guess, when it says the glory of God comes rushing in to the temple. And then we see in Ezekiel, sadly, that the glory of God departs from the temple because they've erected uh, profane images and, and idols in the temple. And God says, I can't be here. This is I can't be in the presence of this wickedness. The whole point of the temple was to keep the dirt out and to have a nice, pure, holy place where God could come and mankind could be following the law and sacrificing and, and having atonement for their sins before they entered into my presence. Now you're bringing that very thing into the most holy place. So thankfully it says that that wasn't the true tabernacle. Those were just a shadow, a type of things that were eternal in the heavens. It says, as you go on in verse 4 of chapter 8 of Hebrews, For if he were on earth, 
he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now as he obtained a more excellent ministry, this is talking about the high priest, capital H, Jesus Christ, inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. The cool thing, and to say cool thing sounds almost, uh, it doesn't do it justice, but somehow Jesus is the altar of burnt offering. He's the offering itself. He's the high priest. He's the holy place and the most of, the holy of holies. So all of the types are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It says right here that his covenant is better because he's also the mediator of the better covenant. And it goes on in Hebrews and talks about how when there's a will, you know, a, uh, a will and testament, it doesn't become effective until someone dies. And it's by this new covenant, it, comes, it becomes effective when Jesus Christ lays down his life. Uh, if you move ahead in Hebrews chapter 9, if you guys are there, it says, uh, <clears throat> actually the, the last verse of chapter 8 says, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Then indeed, even the first covenant had were ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. You're like, I think we have been speaking about them in detail, actually. But he's saying we can't even get into the depths of all these things. Uh, it, let's keep reading because I find it, it speaks for itself. I don't need to teach on this stuff because Hebrews just teaches it for us. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. So hopefully the fact that we went through Exodus, we looked at these pictures, is giving you an, a sense of what's being said here in Hebrews. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. You guys pick up on that a little bit? The Holy Spirit indicating the way into the holiest of all, which we kind of think is the high priest going in and and making it okay for the people. You know, the high priest goes in once a year. It's only a shadow. The high priest was thinking, this is it. This is the, the full everything. And God was saying, there's a high priest in eternity who is himself sacrificing, not for his own sins, but on behalf of the other sins. He's sacrificing himself. That is the holy of holies right there. And the crazy thing is, is that God wants that holy of holies in eternity to come to earth. And he does it by sending his Holy Spirit into believers, which is crazy. It says in verse 9, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So he's saying like killing an animal doesn't make you a better person. You know what I mean? It's 
it's something that God had ordained, but it doesn't take sin away. It was only the sacrifice of Jesus that would take sin away. But it was, it was enough to kind of help them go about their day and feel like they were doing pleasing service to the Lord. And then um, in verse 11, this is where it just gets so good. <laughs> Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation. So what's the tabernacle then? What is he talking about? He came with a perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not of this creation, not a man-made structure. So what is the tabernacle? <clears throat> Justin, if you could go to uh, John chapter 2. What's one of the verses we have there? I'll just read a quick verse to you guys. It says in <laughs> Acts just to, to further drive the point home, Acts 17, 24, Paul says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. You can't contain him, essentially. Like, he's not going to be like, oh, cool, this is a nice house. I'm going to come live here. God, he created all those things. How can he then come and live inside that structure? It just doesn't work. So what is this tabernacle not made with hands? Um, if you remember... Actually, Justin, I apologize. If you go back one verse earlier, Mark fourteen fifty eight, when Jesus was being accused, and we, we know the text where Jesus is saying, you know, put this, you built this temple, tear it down in three days and I'll raise it up again. We read that and we're like, wow, what is, yeah, that's crazy. That's exciting. And then we see this, and this is an accusation that's hurled at Jesus. But we see something in this verse, and you can stick it out, that Jesus doesn't himself say, in the Gospels. It says, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Jesus, when you, you, you won't find him saying those words in the Gospels, but we will find him saying, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again. So I find it really interesting that they specifically say this temple made with hands, and he's going to build another made without hands. So in John 2, it says, Jesus answered and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And in verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So if you catch that, the tabernacle is Jesus Christ. God's presence in Jesus Christ is that perfect temple, a perfect tabernacle made without hands. But it goes further than that. If the temple of God is the body of Christ, who is the body of Christ? church. It says that we are all members of one body, and Christ is the head. And for us as New Testament believers, it says that God has torn, he's taken that veil away, that separation between God and man, and he comes and lives inside the believer, and God decides to dwell in all of his holiness and all of his goodness within the body of not just the church, but in every individual believer that makes up the church. I find that incredibly humbling that the tabernacle that we study in Exodus, that's this big structure and God's going to come. Think about that. The fire would come and rest on the tabernacle above the, the holiest of holies. And the pillar of cloud would be there by the day. And they would actually see it depart. It says that Moses would go into the tabernacle and the people would stand at their door, and they'd watch the presence of God descend. 
and they would meet with Moses, and then Moses would leave, and the, and the presence would go, and Moses would go back to his, te- his tent, and then they would talk to Moses, and he'd wear that veil because he had been with God. That presence that came, as we saw in John 1, when it says, the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us, that presence, that Holy Spirit, comes and decides that it wants to live in me. That's crazy. I can't fathom that. But that is who we are. And the temple that is built later, again, is pointing. It's, it's not a permanent structure. The temple, it says in um, 1 Corinthians 3.16, and this isn't just me like giving me a big pat on the back or trying to make you feel good about yourself or anything like that, because I didn't say it. The Bible said it. It says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And the crazy thing is, is that we can put that little like, oh, it's just a shadow of like the Spirit of God. Like he doesn't really dwell in me. It's just like, like this idea that we're supposed to hold on to until we get to heaven and then everything's good. Which, you know, obviously we will have a new body and it says that we will put off this tent in uh, 2 Corinthians 5. It says this tabernacle that we have, which is earthly and, and is falling apart essentially, we yearn for that new tabernacle that's made in the heavens. So I can't quite grasp it on. I feel bad because I feel like I'm not able to explain it the way the Bible is clearly trying to say it. I don't want to, to, to make it worse. Uh, but the presence of Almighty God comes and lives in a broken down tabernacle on earth, which is me and you. And because of what is inside of us, that eternal glory of God, it makes us yearn for that further clothing. And this is the King James Version because it actually uses the word tabernacle here. It says, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, unhouse. Uh, King James is, you know, the grammar is different than what we understand. A house not made with hands. There it is again. Eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so, that being clothed, we shall be found, not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for what we would be clothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. So it's like God is coming, heaven is coming to earth in, in our hearts with Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God coming within us. And it's making us yearn for that tabernacle, that, that dwelling place of God eternal in the heavens. And that's what the tabernacle was originally created for the children of Israel, was to say, this is just for now. And if you remember, they had the tabernacle. They were in the wilderness, just as we walk through the wilderness of this world. And we, we have a shadow, we have an understanding, even though we do have the Holy Spirit in us, just like the tabernacle. Um, I'm not saying that we don't have the Holy Spirit, and that's something that we're trying to attain, because we, that's a gift from God. But that promised land, that eternity in the heavens with, with God, that is what we are living for. But God gives, it, gives us a taste in advance. So that what? So that we would use that down here. Just as the children of Israel had to know who they were, that they were God's chosen people, that God was dwelling with them so that they could go enter into the promised land and take that land for themselves. They set up these things before they entered into the promised land. If you, were, if you, were, if you understand that, 
You would think that God would get them into the promised land and then set up the system. He set up the system before he actually allowed them into the promised land, which is really interesting because it was to show them what God was going to do. So um, if we just finish up in in Exodus 27, let's read the last few verses here. It says uh, in verse 9, You shall also make the court of the tabernacle for the south side. There shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long for one side, and it's 20 pillars, and their 20 sockets shall be bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be silver. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long with its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze, and the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. And along the width of the court on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars. And there are ten sockets. The width of the court on the east shall be fifty cubits. The hangings on one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and their three sockets. And on the other side shall be hangings of fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and their three sockets. For the gate of the court shall be of a twenty scarlet, uh, twenty cubits long, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine woven linen made by a weaver. It shall be four pillars and four sockets. All the pillars all around the court shall have bands of silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the width width 50 throughout, the height five cubits made of fine woven linen and its sockets of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for all its service, all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. And you shall command the children of Israel that they will bring you pure oil, pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually in the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony. Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. So Christ is the tabernacle. He's the burnt offering. He's the sacrificial lamb. He is all and in all. Everything that we read and it's very important. Like when we, when we find ourselves seeing something in the Old Testament, we're like, I don't get this. I don't understand what the purpose of this is. If you put Jesus into it, it starts to become very clear. Uh, let's read a, a verse or two more from, from Hebrews 10. I apologize. <clears throat> it says in verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Uh, The last verse I want to show is Revelation 21.3. And uh, it sums it up because it's the end of the Bible. But it's also how it was intended to be in the beginning when Adam and Eve were with God in the garden. Uh, Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. 
So um, thank you, guys. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for, uh, for your word. I, I, uh, it's so meaty. <laughs> uh, there's so much depth to it, and there's no way that we can fit it into a uh, Wednesday night. Um, but, Lord, I just pray that just the taste would, would just make us want more and more and that we would continue to, to seek out these truths and allow our lives to be changed for the better as a result of coming to a knowledge of who you are, that we, as the Bible says, that we would come to the full assurance of our hope in heaven and that we would allow the knowledge of Jesus Christ to come in and change us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.